Welcome to Getting In, a college coach conversation hosted by Elizabeth Heaton. There are so many challenges involved in the college process, including choosing the right college, planning a payment strategy, creating a high school plan, and much more. The team of experts from College Coach are here to help you find some, if not all, of the answers you need. Now, here is your host, Elizabeth Heaton. Good afternoon, everybody, and welcome to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. It's the day after Christmas. Woohoo! Um, although, actually, I'm always a little depressed the day after Christmas. But I hope that wherever you are and whatever you celebrate, and may not be Christmas, could be Hanukkah, could be um, a multitude of different holidays, that you are enjoying a much needed break and not working on last minute essays and applications. Because, of course, if you listen to the podcast regularly, you have been working ahead and you're done at this point. So I hope that's the case for you. Uh, on today's show, we're going to be answering your questions. I love it when you guys send in questions. Um, many of them turn into larger ideas for segments that we cover here. Uh, so thank you for sending them in. Please continue to send them in. Uh, and if you're wondering where the heck you can do that, you could send us questions on our Facebook page or to gettingin.voiceamerica@gmail.com. Uh, All right. But before we get to your questions, I'm excited to introduce my colleague, Elise Krantz, who's a former Barnard and Bennington admissions officer, but also is very fondly known in our offices as the queen of information. Uh, And if you are looking for a stat or some detail uh, and you can't find it yourself, if you let Elise know, she often can find it very quickly. Um, And she's going to talk to us about some information that you may want to access called the Common Data Set. Hi, Elise. Hi, Beth. How are you? I'm good, thank you. And thanks for joining us today and and talking to us about the Common Data Set. And I think the first question I have for you is, what is the Common Data Set? So the Common Data Set, it's a collaboration, really, of higher education institutions across the United States where they have put together a very generic form that asks a lot of detailed statistical questions relating everything to the um, demographics of the school, who's applying to the school, um, and so many different pieces that can be relevant for students applying to college, both in terms of admissions and financial aid. And this data is then collected by all of these colleges and is then disseminated to a couple of different um, resources, namely the College Board, Peterson's, and U.S. News and World Report. So if you're ever wondering where these these uh, companies are getting their data from, it's all coming from the college-reported common data sets. Got it. So you just shared um, a few companies that have that information. But, um, you know, the thing that I worry about sometimes is that not all of the companies will necessarily keep their information as updated as it could be. So as an example, I would give that um, when you go to submit your test scores on the college board, they will, um, if you're opting to select the scores you're going to send, there might be a notice that pops up indicating that the school in question requires that you submit or asks you to submit all of your scores. But what I know from previous years is that 
they haven't done a great job of keeping that information updated so that it might tell you that the school asks that you submit all your scores, but the school's policy may have changed. So with that in mind, um, what would you recommend for if, you know, you want to make sure you're getting the most up-to-date information, where could you find the common data set info? So if you're looking to get hardcore statistics from everything from admissions to financial aid, um, and we, we'll drill down into what some of these great numbers that you can find are, the best way that I find to get it is by going to your favorite internet search provider and typing in common data set, and then the name of the school that you're searching for. So just in preparation for our chat today, I was looking up numbers from a whole bunch of colleges, and they all, for the most part, there's a handful of colleges that do not like reporting their numbers for a variety Mm -hmm. of reasons, but the the vast majority of schools will um, provide a link on their website. Usually it's a PDF document that you can then scroll through, and you will see just huge quantities of numbers um, that can give you great insights into what's going on behind the scenes at a lot of these schools from the admissions perspective. So with that in mind, what can you use it for? Um, Maybe just in general terms, and then we can drill down a little bit into, say, what maybe some seniors could use it for, for example. Sure. Um, I find that uh, there's a lot of different... Um, there's different categories within the data. So, for example, they have just general information about the school, like their address, and um, they have data on their number of students enrolled, and they'll break it down into men and women or uh, in-state versus out-of-state or students of color. Um, they, and then they have a lot of great statistics on admission, um, both first-year admission and transfer admission. Um, and then they have some nice statistics about student life, which includes things like percentage of students involved in Greek life, percentage of students who live on campus. Um, and then there's the financial aid component as well and the, the cost of attending the school. So for seniors in particular, so any seniors who are listening to this now, you probably don't need to do a whole lot of research at this moment um, as it relates to admissions statistics. But I do find that for seniors who are ultimately waitlisted, and this information will not likely come to you until March or very, very early April of this year, there is um, a place where waitlist statistics are indicated on the common data set so that you can see exactly, if the school reports it, how many students were offered a place on last year's waitlist, mm-hmm. how many students chose to accept a spot on that waitlist, and then how many students were ultimately admitted from the waitlist. So these can be really handy um, if you do get waitlisted at one of your top choice schools just to get a sense of really what are my chances, how, what's happened in the past at that particular institution. Right, and I will just throw out there, because you and I did a segment on this at, in last spring, that these numbers can be shocking, and sometimes yeah. <laughs> it's good to get this data, because you can see quite clearly that the chances of you getting off that wait list are basically zero, and that maybe will help you fully cut the cord and say, never mind. Um, so that's one thing that I think data can be extraordinarily useful for, right, is just... Um, giving you a more realistic picture than perhaps you want to think about or believe, but, you know, the hard numbers can lie, but they generally don't lie. Um, So I think that is really good advice as a place to go. What about juniors and maybe um, 
younger underclassmen who are still in the research phase? What are some areas that you would direct them to when they go to check out the common data set? So in the common data set, as I said, it's sort of organized categorically um, with these different headers. And so the one that most uh, underclass students would be looking at, including juniors, there's a section called, it's, it's labeled Section C, First Time, First Year Freshman Admission. And this is where you'll find lots of fantastic numbers. Um, and one of the ones, one of our colleagues uses this data a lot, actually. It shows you the required and recommended high school classes that applicants take. And what I mean by that is, you know, we always hear at College Coach, we'll say we always recommend four years of all the major core subjects, but not all colleges really require four years of every core subject. And it'll show you on the common data set for individual schools what they recommend and what they require for different subjects. So I just looked up, for example, the University of Texas at Austin as an example, and they do require four years of English, math, science, and social studies, but they only require two years of a foreign language. And we often push back at that and say, no, no, take three years, take four years of Spanish or French. But for some schools, they really only, it's their minimum, it's their minimum requirement, and it's, it's always good to try to do a little bit better than that if possible, but it's there right in black and white. For, for most schools, they'll indicate exactly what they recommend you take. Well, what's interesting about that, too, is that um, four years of math and English and social studies and science is often not the requirement at a high school, right? So at many high schools, you could, you maybe you need to do four years of English, but the others could be three years that they are requiring. And so if you are going to be heading to a school like UT Austin, um, you're not only going to have to go above, you're going to have to go above and beyond what your high school is requiring. And that's one of the reasons we encourage students doing that so that you don't find yourself in a, in a jam because you didn't realize it and you just did what was required at the high school. You just did the bare minimum, right? You need more pieces exactly. of flair. Yep. <laughs> for for those office space people fans out there. Anyway, okay. W- what else? That I think those are that's really great that they are including what they require, to, and and um, also what's recommended. So maybe there is a little wiggle room, but they might indicate we certainly recommend that you take more, but we only require this. Right. So another an example of a school that only lists recommendations and not requirements is Stanford. Um, mm-hmm. So they on their common data set, they say that they recommend four years of English and math and then three or more years of science, foreign language, and social studies. So there they're not drawing a firm line in the sand, but they are allowing students to um, theoretically create uh, an educational path in high school that makes sense for them. Um, but for most competitive students, that means taking four years of, of all the core subjects. Yes, it is a little ironic that the school that probably expects the most <laughs> would would only recommend and indicate that perhaps the most wasn't required when we know that it is. Okay, what are uh, what are some other um, areas? What about you know things like demonstrated interest, which is can be sometimes tricky to um, figure out if a school is really tracking that. Right. Um, so there's a great section of, of the common data set where they ask colleges what's important to you in the admissions process. And by and large, academics always fall into the very important category. But demonstrated interest that they, um, the students 
uh, interest in showing that they're likely to attend the school can really vary from college to college. So there are some schools that will absolutely not consider it. For example, Carnegie Mellon. This is a new change for them, and it's mm-hmm. clearly marked off in the not considered category. They don't care if a student has visited or has done an interview. You don't have to demonstrate interest in that formal way. But other schools, um, for example, at... Tulane University. They say that interest is considered, um, or at Reed College in Oregon, it's it's important to them. Um, but interestingly, American University in Washington D.C. They're one of the smaller handful of schools that say demonstrated interest is very important. So this can be so helpful when you're trying to figure out when you have your list of colleges and you're trying to figure out which schools should I make that extra effort to go visit, or which of those schools should I try to get down to the school cafeteria when the rep is visiting my my high school for that visit, should I make a point of meeting them? Um, Knowing which schools count and weigh that demonstrated interest in the process can can help you figure out um, those determinations. Got it. And and so I think that is super valuable because, you know, as you know, generally speaking, you can't always visit every single school, but if you know that it's very important, you can make the effort if you possibly can get to campus. Um, what are some other things that you would direct juniors and, and younger to who are doing um, research right now? Um, the the standardized testing, which I know is such a hot issue right now, and maybe in five years we'll all listen back to this episode and laugh that there even used to be something called standardized testing that students had to worry about. But for the foreseeable future, we do have to worry about it. And so many times, as you know, Beth, students, you know, have these wonderful dreams of you know aspiring to the most hyper hyper selective colleges, and yet their testing doesn't quite align with what that college is looking for. And they say, well, you never know. I'll just throw in my application. Well, right here on the common data set, (laughs) students can see exactly what the average scores are for enrolled first-year students. And a really neat way they break it down is they will show you the percent of enrolled first-years who earned a score in a specific range. So what I mean by that, for example, with Harvard, I just use them as a fun example, (laughs) 85% of their first-year students scored between 700 and 800 on the verbal portion of the SAT. And 88%, even higher, scored in that same range, 700 to 800, on the math portion of the SAT. So that goes to show you that if if you're not in that range or close to that range, then your chances of getting in are much, much, much less. Of course, Harvard is very holistic in their approach. It's just one factor. But just statistically speaking, most students are scoring incredibly high on their standardized tests for a place like Harvard. Right, and I would even argue that the 700 to 800 isn't isn't even narrow enough, that if they actually drilled down and showed you the percentage that were in the 750 to 800 range, um, that there would be a fairly high percentage Mm -hmm. that were in that range as well. So even that can be slightly misleading, not intentionally so, but slightly. Um, What about something that's very much top of mind right now as early decision and early action results come in? um, Is that information that you can find in the common data set? Yeah, so early decision statistics are, for whatever reason, they don't capture early action uh, statistics. Um, So that might be something that you can find on the school's website directly, um, or it might be listed on the College Board. I haven't double-checked that. But in terms of early decision, the binding 
yes, I apply to one school, I get in, I'm going, that is listed for most schools. And so it'll show you the percent that applies early, the percent that gets in early, and then you can do your own calculations and compare that percentage, for example, to the regular, the overall admit, and be like, wow, there's a real advantage here. Or at some schools, maybe the advantage is a little less, but it does give you a nice breakdown. It always breaks down male and female as well, so you can see how many males applied ED and got an ED or females, um, and that's, that's a great number to, to keep in mind. What about the question of the hour, which is how many deferrals um, end up getting in? Do they capture that information? I so wish they did because I know a lot of students always wonder is the deferral that they're getting from the early round, is that a courtesy deferral? Is it they're really interested in me and I have a good chance of getting in deferral? But unfortunately, that information is not captured on the common data set. Yep. My advice to people is that generally students who are deferred are admitted at about the same rate as regular. So the advantage goes away and you have just as much a chance as anybody, um, which is not what people always want to hear. But there you have it. All right. What about um, last question? What about paying for college? That's obviously a big piece of the the equation for almost everyone. Um, So is there information you can find there that might be valuable? Absolutely. They, they do a really nice job of showing you the exact number of students who were applying for financial aid, who were hoping to get it, and then the percent of those that are actually getting it. And then they'll break it down further to say, here are the number of students who are getting need-based aid, as well as the number of students who are getting merit or non-need-based aid. And then they'll give you the numbers for the actual average packages for each of those groups so that as you're trying to figure out, and there's all sorts of calculators out there and ways to also determine um, what your likelihood of, of paying the full tuition is or, or what kind of scholarships you might get at a particular school, but sometimes seeing those average numbers of what the typical first-year student might be getting from both the merit as well as the need-based aid can be, can be helpful. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think the bottom line for us in sharing this information is that data is good, data is helpful. Data does not tell the entire story, but it certainly can help you to um, do a better job with your research and assessing your fit at some of um, the schools that are out there. Elise, thank you so much for joining us today. Absolutely. It's been my pleasure. All right, wonderful. Well, to our listeners, please don't go away. We are going to be answering your questions when we come back, so you definitely don't want to miss that. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. If you're a parent of a high school student, you've probably heard a lot of scary stories about college admissions, about the growing number of applicants, the shrinking number of spots, about how even valedictorians are being turned away. For families of hopeful college students, it's impossible not to worry. But at College Coach, we take the worry out. Our advisors are former senior admissions and college finance officers from all over the country, so they can give you advice that nobody else can about what classes to take, 
how to prepare for standardized tests, what options are available to pay for college, and most importantly, what admissions officers are looking for when they read an application. We've got more than 15 years of experience and a track record that's helped every single student get into college, most into their top choice schools. So make the decision to come work with College Coach and start your child down the road to the decision that really matters, the one in the envelope that says, yes. Visit www.getintocollege.com forward slash getting dash in. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to facebook.com forward slash voice America or search for the keywords voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to facebook.com forward slash voice America or search for voice America. You are listening to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. To reach Elizabeth Heaton or her guest today, please call in to 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back, everybody. We are here, as we do at least once a month, and sometimes more frequently than that, we're answering your questions. I mentioned this in the intro, but if you want us to answer your questions, you have to send us your questions. So you can do that in a couple of ways. You could send them to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com, or you could follow us on Facebook and you could post questions there and just let us know there for the podcast and we'll do our best to answer them. So again, getting in gmail.com or um, you can post them on Facebook. Uh, all right. Well, joining me as she frequently does for our Q&A sessions is Shannon Vasconcelos, who is a former financial aid officer at BU and Tufts and also works with me here at College Coach. Hi, Shannon. Hi, Beth. Well, thanks for joining. We have, as always, a bunch of questions to get through. So why don't we jump right in and we will start with actually, very exciting, an Instagram follower. Hey, did you guys know we're on Instagram? (laughs) At Elizabeth Heaton 92 (laughs) or at College Coach BH. Uh, All right. So our Instagram follower says this. Hello, my 17-year-old son is a cancer survivor. He was diagnosed and treated in the year 2002 at Jackson Memorial Hospital in Miami. As parents, after all the unforeseen expenses of his treatment, we cannot afford college expenses. Please let me know how to find a scholarship for my son. Yeah, so first of all, we're very glad that that he's okay now. Yes, Um, yes. And if... It's, yeah, the most important thing. Um, now, if the year is right in the question, 2002, and he's 17, he must have been a, if that year is right, he must have been a baby when he was treated for cancer, um, which would be 17 years ago, which is particularly terrible. <laughs> I'm mm-hmm. sorry that happened to you. Um, but the issue with that, with the timing, the fact that this all happened 17 years ago, is that the financial aid application process looks at your current financial situation. Now, you can always appeal to the financial aid office to and ask them to consider any special financial circumstances that you have, uh, but they do need to be current 
circumstances. You can't, you know, appeal and say, I had high medical expenses 17 years ago. There's nothing really that they can do with that information because they're looking at your situation now. Now, if you're still suffering repercussions from those expenses, like you got medical debt or you know, you took on all this credit card debt to pay those medical bills and you're still paying those cards off today. Or maybe he, he might have had to have had, you know, continued treatment over the years and you're you're still taking on new medical expenses. That's something that the financial aid offices can take into consideration what's going on right now. So if that's the case, you'd want to write a letter uh, to each of the college aid, college aid offices, explain those circumstances that this, you know, big chunk of your income is going to medical expenses every month, document everything, send them, you know, bills and receipts and things and ask them to take that into consideration when they review your aid application. Now, if you don't have any ongoing expenses that have to do with his treatment, you know, you just did in the past and that put you in a position where you couldn't save for college so you don't have a lot of savings, that's not really anything that you, you really have to appeal. It's going to automatically be taken into consideration when they review your financial aid application. So they will see that, you know, you have $0 in the bank or or whatever that is, and that will help you in, in the calculations. You don't have to explain why you have $0 in the bank. You know, they don't make any judgments on, you know, whether you have, don't have savings for a good reason or a bad reason. They just say, okay, you have no money in the bank, so we can't expect any contribution from savings. You don't really have to do anything special about that. Um, so I would just go through the normal financial aid application process. If you do have ongoing medical expenses or debt payments, submit an appeal letter explaining all of that. And that will likely take care of you know, kind of the best sources of funding for you. The, the other thing just to be aware of is that there are also private scholarships out there uh, specifically for students who have had cancer. Um, I know of a few cancer survivor fund, um, collegiatecancer.org, uh, and the Ullman Foundation, U-L-M-A-N. Um, they all give scholarships for kids who have survived cancer. Um, sometimes, uh, like, smaller organizations for specific types of cancers will have scholarship funding. So if there was any organization that helped you when you were going through treatment, check their website. They might have a scholarship. Um, for I, I don't think that this applies to this specific family, but for folks who were have been affected other ways by cancer, there's scholarships out there for students who've lost parents to cancer or students who have siblings with cancer. So if, if cancer has touched your, you know, immediate family, do some basic web searches uh, on, you know, cancer scholarships and, and you will find some resources out there. So I would say, you know, to, to sum up, sorry, this is a very long answer, but no, you know, go through okay. the normal financial aid process, appeal if you have to, look for those cancer-specific scholarships. Um, and I just, I guess to say to everybody out there who doesn't have, you know, what they would like to have in college savings for, you know, whatever reason, cancer in a child is a particularly terrible one, but, you know, uh, most of us have not saved what we wanted to save, you know, because life happens and there are illnesses and divorces and job losses and all this stuff comes up. Um, there are always options for folks. You can always start at the community college, go there for a couple of years, then transfer to the four-year school. There's always student loans you can borrow. So, um, you know, for everyone out there, specifically this Instagram follower, you know, your child will be able to go to college. It's just a matter of, of putting those puzzle pieces together. Yes. 
All right. Yeah. And I have a question for you from Susie. She says, my daughter is a senior. We are an English-speaking American family living in Brazil. Although my daughter is fluent in English, she has only ever studied in schools where Portuguese is the language of instruction. She self-studied for the English literature subject test, earning a 660. Okay, good for her. Um, My question is, how will her score be regarded by admissions teams? Will they consider the fact that she never studied English literature? Will it be considered a greater achievement than the same score coming from a student who studied English literature? Her areas of interest are writing and filmmaking. She has a wide range of schools on her list. She didn't know if she should report her subject test result on applications to the highly selective schools on her list. Thank you in advance for your help. Well, so, um, you know, I would echo what Shannon said. Good for her. She's never taken um, or studied that in school and self-studied for the exam. I would say that I do recommend prep when possible because especially for a student who's never actually studied the subject to go in with just kind of preparing yourself on your own is probably putting you at a disadvantage. Um, So that's one thought. Um, And it could be just even using Khan Academy if they have some information there to help you on that test. Um, Even just talking to someone and finding out what are they actually going to be testing me on this exam? Because while you don't have to have read any specific pieces of literature, you do have to be comfortable reading and analyzing literature, including poetry, to do well on this test. So I do think that a 660 is great for a student who has never studied. However, when it comes to the highly selective schools, it's really not going to cut it. And while they might appreciate that she never studied in an English-speaking school, the fact is that she She is a native speaker, and I don't think it keeps her out, but I just don't think it adds. And going back to our conversation that I had in the first segment with Elise about the common data set, the reality is that there are not many students um, looking competitive at the highly selective level with test scores in the 600s. In fact, even in the 700s, um, depending on where you're at, that may not be particularly good. Um, So... I would not submit that score to a highly selective school. Um, Even though I do think it tells a really great story and most schools, um, you know, I would go ahead and submit it and, and maybe be clear about the fact that she has never studied English in school um, to, to kind of add that context. I just don't think it adds anything at the highly selective level. And so while, again, I don't think it will hurt her, I just don't think it will help. And therefore, why include it? Um, So that would be my take there. All right. Um, We have two questions that when I was reviewing these seem to be asking more or less the same thing. So I'm going to give them to you together. One comes from Phil who says, I'm trying to complete the CSS profile for my high school senior son, but got stumped by one question. They ask, how much will your parents contribute to your education for the upcoming school year? I'll pay what I have to, but obviously I don't want to pay a lot. How should I answer this question? And Kyle also refers to that same question um, on the CSS profile And um, going further to say, how much does the student expect to receive from the following sources to pay for educational expenses? My question is about parental contribution. How is this question used 
Do they use this when determining merit aid? Can too low a number hurt your chance of admission? Will too high of a number mean they will reduce merit aid? I'm guessing there is no way that this is left up to that much chance. So <laughs> tell us the real deal, <laughs> Shannon. <laughs> Yes, I'm so excited. I added that, that. I got... added that last bit. Sorry. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> okay. But this is my absolute favorite question on the CSS profile. I know it's a weird thing to have a favorite profile question, but, but I love this one because it is so confusing. We get questions about it all the time and people families kind of get the sense like, oh, what do I put here? Are they trying to trick me? <laughs> and right. I think to some extent they kind of are. So first of all, to, to answer some of Kyle's question, it will not affect your admission. It will not affect merit aid. Um, the only thing that this question could possibly affect is need-based financial aid, and it may not even do that. So some schools completely ignore this question. One of the schools that I worked at, we would just skip right over it. We don't care because, like you said, it, it's kind of too much left to chance. We're, we're not going to um, uh, give much credence to that particular question. Um, right. But other, what other schools will do, and the other school where I worked did this, they will calculate, sort of at first ignoring that question, calculate what we think your expected family contribution should be based on your income and your assets and all of that. We will then take a look at what you have said you can contribute in that particular question, and we will take whichever number is higher. So even if, you, if we calculated we thought your family could contribute $5,000 a year, but you stated in that question that you're expecting to contribute $20,000 a year, we would say, oh, okay, you know better than we do. I guess <laughs> you can contribute $20,000 a year, and we will reduce your financial aid accordingly. Um, so, so that's kind of the worst-case scenario. That's what some schools do, and that's what could happen. So the, the big advice for this question is don't be overly generous. Um, what I would do is do an EFC calculator. You can find one on the College Board's website, um, bigfuture.org. They have a great EFC calculator. Do an EFC calculator to get a sense of what the colleges are likely going to calculate your expected family contribution to be. And whatever you kind of offer on the profile there, don't go over that number um, where, that the colleges are going to calculate for you anyway. Um, and often when I say that to folks, then they'll say, well, should I just put a zero? which you can, and probably nothing bad will ever come of it. I like to see families offer a little something there, um, and it would likely never, you know, come into play in any kind of calculations, again, as long as it's lower than your calculated EFC. Um, but where it could come up is if you ever had to go back to the financial aid office and appeal your financial aid offer, ask them to consider some special circumstances that you have. It just might generate a little bit more goodwill in the financial aid office if you have offered to contribute something. You know, when a family offers zero and then they ask for like extra help from the aid office or the aid office, you know, the kind of the first inclination to say, really, you know, mm -hmm. you make $300,000 a year, you can't contribute anything. Um, so I would say offer something there, but don't be overly generous. Make sure that it's lower than your uh, calculated expected family contribution. That is really great okay. advice that I, yes. that I didn't yes. know much about. Okay. You got a question yes. for me. Such a tricky question. 
Yes, I do. So this one comes from Beth. My daughter was deferred from her first choice school, which offers early decision one and early decision two. Should she change her application to ED2 to make it clear she really wants to attend? Hmm. Tricky thing, especially with schools offering multiple opportunities to commit to them. I personally, it's tough to make a blanket statement as everyone who and anyone who listens to the show knows. Um, the thing is, they do know that the school was her first choice. They had an opportunity to accept her and they decided not to. Um, this might be a situation where you want to call the school or have your school counselor call the school, um, but maybe you just call the school and say, you know, I, I this is really where I want to be. Would you suggest that I change to ED2? Um, my gut says it's not necessarily going to improve your chances because, like I said, they did have an opportunity to take you in early when you were committing to them and they didn't. At the same time, I would never want to say, um, you know, dismiss the idea out of hand. So this is a really tough one. And um, I just think that um, I wouldn't make the change without checking with the school. You want to make sure, first of all, that they allow it. Um, but also I think if you can get any type of a read from the admissions officer on whether or not they think that would be a valuable choice, it's worth having that conversation. Um, the reason I sometimes would suggest a school counselor call is because if you go to a school, usually this is going to be a private school versus a public, but not always. But if you go to a school where a counselor has a, re- a relationship with the college, and, and by relationship, I really just mean that they talk to the admissions office, not that the admissions office has a preference for students from that school or that there is any kind of back channel into the college, but more that there's an open relationship. Sometimes they can get from that admissions person, you know, a leaning one way or the other, like, well, I'm not sure I would encourage that or I would definitely encourage that. Um, it does happen that you go in and you shape a class every year and it happens in early as well as in regular. So usually a school has a target number of students they want to admit in the early rounds um, and they don't want to do more than that. And so something um, will sometimes happen where you shape the class, where you might pull people out of um They might be in the class. I know it's really painful to hear. You might be in the class and then get pulled out at the last minute. Um, That might be a scenario where, yeah, you you would love it as the admissions officer if that student opted to go into ED2 if your school allows it, because then you might be able to say in the ED2 round, look, this kid was in. We had to pull her out. And she still wants to be here. Let's, um, you know, let's try and make that decision here. But my personal thoughts about this are just that um, you've given them an opportunity to take them. You've given them your commitment. I, at this point, would probably want to widen my um, 
my sights a bit and be less focused on this one school and looking around at, is there another school where they haven't seen your application yet that you also like a lot that maybe you might want to do ED2 at instead? Um, And that might be a better option. So, um, all right, we need to take a quick break. And when we come back, we are going to come right back to your questions. So as always, don't go away. We're coming right back. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. If you're a parent of a high school student, you've probably heard a lot of scary stories about college admissions, about the growing number of applicants, the shrinking number of spots, about how even valedictorians are being turned away. For families of hopeful college students, it's impossible not to worry. But at College Coach, we take the worry out. Our advisors are former senior admissions and college finance officers from all over the country, so they can give you advice that nobody else can about what classes to take, how to prepare for standardized tests, what options are available to pay for college, and most importantly, what admissions officers are looking for when they read an application. We've got more than 15 years of experience and a track record that's helped every single student get into college, most into their top choice schools. So make the decision to come work with College Coach and start your child down the road to the decision that really matters, the one in the envelope that says yes. Visit www.getintocollege.com forward slash getting dash in. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. You are listening to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. To reach Elizabeth Heaton or her guest today, please call in to 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back, everybody. We are answering your questions. My colleague Shannon Vasconcelos is here, and we are going to jump right back in. And Shannon, I think you have a question that is closely related to the one that I just answered. So maybe we go, we start there. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, it's very, very similar. So Adam asks, my daughter was deferred in early action. The school offers early decision two, and they are encouraging her to do ED2. Will that improve her chances? Ooh, this is a tricky one. This is something somewhat new that we are seeing over the past few years where a handful of schools who offer early action and early decision, and in some cases, two rounds of early decision, which is what Adam is describing here, are taking kids who are applying early action, which is non-binding, which is great if you are not sure if the school is your top choice, 
and or great if you uh, need to compare financial aid packages, right? But you are sort of trying to let the school know, I really like you. I'm in. I'm here. I'm in your early round, but I'm not in the binding round for whatever reason. Um, and they are asking those students, um, you know, encouraging, in fact, them to switch uh-huh. into an early decision round, right? Now, the challenge there is, well, if you wanted to do ED, you would have done ED, right? But you didn't. You chose the early action non-binding program. So I am not a fan of this, but no one's asking me. So the question here (laughs) is, is this going to help you? And on the one hand, I want to say, yeah, they wouldn't encourage it if they didn't think this would definitely improve your chances. And in my mind, I cannot imagine as an admissions officer connecting with a student and encouraging them to switch into the ED round or the ED2 round and then denying them. And yet, yeah. that is what we have seen. So uh, what, I have, what, t- what I take away from that is that it's, um, it's not very nice game playing from the college's perspective. And I know why they're doing it. They're doing it because they are, um, you know, trying to get more students who will commit they don't encourage it and they don't, they're not encouraging it and they already know that the kid's not going to be competitive and they're going to deny them. My guess is that they're encouraging it because maybe they know the kid is not going to be really competitive in early action. And so they are basically encouraging them to take the path that will make them more competitive. But the, but the fact is that they take, they're taking an already stressful situation, making it worse um, and I'm not a fan. And in this scenario, I, you know, unless this is truly this, your daughter's top choice, Adam, I, I don't see why she would switch into ED2. Maybe if it's become her top choice, but she wasn't willing to commit in ED1, I don't, what has changed that she could commit in ED2? Um, And if what has changed is that what she was hoping for would happen in the early rounds at some other schools didn't pan out, and now this is her first choice, then yes, for sure, I would switch. If, on the other hand, you still need to compare financial packages and make the best choice um, from there then I would say don't do it. And if that means ultimately she won't get in, well, then she's not committed to a school that you can't afford. And that seems like a positive to me. Um, And I'm not trying to be glib and flippant, but like I said, unless the circumstances have changed, um, I would not make the switch because while, yes, it might improve her chances, I don't see the point of being committed to a school if you're not ready to be committed to a school. So... That's my advice there. All right, Shannon, we have another question here Um, for you. This comes to us from Todd. Uh, I'm paying for a freshman at a private college that costs over $70,000 annually, offers no merit aid and requires the FAFSA and CSS. My only other child is in 11th grade and is beginning the college search. I'm planning to electively switch to working part-time in the near future, but my annual reported income won't be noticeably impacted until 2021. If I don't apply for any aid until the 2022-23 year, senior and sophomore years of kids' college, 
is there a chance one or both of my kids will receive need-based aid? Will colleges press for my details about my work status if the only other income level they have is from 2018 when my son was applying and I submitted the FAFSA and CSS? How does the cost of the second child's college factor in and how would the two colleges know about what the other college is awarding to the other child in order to determine our EFC? There's a lot there. There's a lot going on. I know. Yes. And I actually had to, when I saw Todd submitted this question, like create a little spreadsheet for myself to map out when each kid will be in school and what year of income financial aid is based upon in that year, um, which I would recommend actually everyone do who's trying to kind of figure this out for themselves. When are your kids going to be in school? What year of income are they looking at in the aid applications? Um, because the first very important note is that financial aid is by default based upon your income from two years prior to the start of the year you're applying for aid for. So it basically is the repercussions there is that it takes two years for changes in income to catch up with you on an aid application. So Todd says his income is going to decrease in 2021. So that won't show up on an aid application until the 2023-24 school year. And that's actually a year later than what Todd stated Mm. in his question. So, Todd, we want to make sure that you're clear. It's not going to show up till 2023-24. So by that time, Todd's older son, by my math, will have graduated, and it will be his younger son's junior year of college. So it that could help his younger son qualify for aid for his last couple years of school um, if his income is low enough. But at that point now, he's no longer helped by having two in college, which does actually make a tremendous difference to the aid calculations. Um, At most colleges, your expected family contribution is just split right in half between the two kids. Um, opening up a lot more aid eligibility for each of them. Um, though the, the colleges that use that CSS profile form, as, as Todd's older son's college does at least, they often do a more kind of intensive calculation and they may take into account how expensive the sibling's college is and what kind of aid they're receiving. Um, they do ask, Todd asks, like, how do they know these, where they know where they're going, what kind of aid they're getting. They do ask for that info on the CSS, and some colleges will actually go further and verify what you report on the CSS by requiring you to have the, the sibling's college fill out a form verifying that they're enrolled and what kind of aid they're getting. Um, so there, there is opportunity for, for the school to verify that, that information. Um, so kind of for, by default, Todd's decrease in income isn't going to help until after his older son has graduated because of that two-year delay in, in when income's reported on aid application. But I think Todd can and probably should appeal to the financial aid offices to consider his special circumstances immediately when he has that decrease in income. So it's not on his FAFSA yet, but Todd could as soon as 2021 when that income decreases. um, So that's his oldest junior year of college and his youngest freshman year appeal to the colleges at that point to take his 
decreased income into account immediately and base the financial aid on his new lower income. But that they would be making an exception for him in doing that, which they can do. It is always at their discretion, and it's always good to ask for those exceptions, but they're not required to. So it, here's where it would be helpful if that decrease in income was not voluntary, and Todd says it is voluntary. Um, so, mm-hmm. you know, it would be a much clearer case for financial aid purposes if he could say, you know, I really want to keep working and keep contributing to my kid's education, but I got laid off or my, you know, position got eliminated, so I can't. Colleges would tend to be more sympathetic to that. Um, they would be l- less likely to, you know, make an exception for you if you say, I'm voluntarily cutting back my hours so, so I can relax at the beach more. You know, I would, I would like right. your institution to provide more financial aid so that I can live this life of leisure that I want. <laughs> you know, not, not that Todd would say that or that uh, I don't expect that's what he's doing, but just to kind of illustrate the, the extremes of what colleges would tend to be sympathetic to or not. Uh, certainly, if there's any extenuating circumstances of why, Todd, you feel the need to cut back on your work at this point, that would certainly help your case. So I would bring those up uh, in the letter that you're writing. Um, so I would say... In, by 2023, when the aid is automatically based on 2021 income, doesn't matter why your income is lower at that point. They just go by, you know, whatever that income is automatically. But if it's prior to 2023, when you're asking them to make an exception to consider your lower income, that's when there's kind of more judgment involved and they're going to look at the old income and you're going to need to explain why it's lower. Um, so there's no reason not to submit the appeal. You know, even if you don't have, you know, quote unquote, a good reason for the lower income, there's no downside in asking. The worst they'll do is, you know, not give you any more aid, which they're already not doing. So it's, right. not, it's not going to get any worse than that. And you never know if, if the school has, um, some funding available that year, uh, they may say yes. So it's always worth a shot. You just have a better case when the income loss is involuntary. Got it. All right. Good to know. Okay. So I have a question for you. Uh, should I'm, I'm assuming this is coming from a high school senior. Um, maybe not. You can tell me. Uh, the question is, should <laughs> I try the SAT or ACT one last time? <laughs> Well, it's a good question. I have no idea if this is a junior or a senior. I would guess that you're right, Shannon. It's a senior. Um, but of course, I have no information beyond what's here. I don't know how you did. I don't know if what you did is competitive at the schools that you're shooting for. I don't know what schools you're shooting for. So here is what I will say. If you are going to take the test one last time, um, what are you going to do differently from the previous times that you've taken it? And by that, I mean, are you going to do more prep? Are you going to do different prep? Um, are you going to do some prep having never done any before? If you're going to do something that is going to appreciably change how you are going to be prepared for that test the next time you take it, um, then maybe so. Maybe it is a good idea. Um, if you're not going to do anything and you're just going to sit for it again, I, I don't know if it's worth it unless statistically you really only got one or two wrong and it really impacted your score in a negative way, And in which case maybe it is worth it. Um, but the, the, the real thing that I would say here too is, are you going to always wonder what if I had taken it one more time? And this is what I say to seniors that I'm talking to about this. If I'm sitting here saying, well, you know, the scores are solid, they could be better, um, but they're they're in line, 
and you're saying to me, well, what do you think? Should I do it one more time? My first question is always about what are you going to do to improve? But then the second question is always, how will you feel if you don't get into your schools of choice and you could have taken it one more time and perhaps done better? Will you feel like, wow, that was a a missed opportunity? Or do you feel comfortable with what you have and you feel like it represents your best effort? Because if you feel like you really prepared and this represents your best uh, work um, on any given Saturday that you've taken the exam or maybe on a Sunday, depending on you, then I would say maybe not. If you're not going to look back with regret, then by all means, call it a day and focus on the other important parts of your application. If you feel like you've left something on the table and you can devote one more Saturday to it, then maybe you should. So that's what I say to that listener. And Shannon, thank you so much for being with us today. We are um, almost out of time. So thanks so much. Um, Next week. Sally is hosting. We It's going to be the day after New Year's Day. So what else to talk about that day but New Year's resolutions? So both on the finance and admissions side. Also, what to do now that all of your applications are in since many, many deadlines are on January 1. Um, and don't forget that we are here every Thursday, 4 p.m. Eastern and 1 p.m. Pacific. Thank you for tuning in to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation, hosted by Elizabeth Heaton. Please join us again next Thursday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week.